I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I was recently interviewed by Melissa Doherty on the topic of New Age teaching and how it's actually infiltrating Christian churches like never before. Um, It's been on my heart for a while to deal with this topic, and so I'm thankful for Melissa for partnering with me because she could help bring the New Age understanding. But not only do I want to help, hopefully, churches and people in churches that are feeling the the sense that something's wrong, something's wrong that's going on. Uh, but I also want to help uh, people who are involved in these movements, who aren't Christians at all, but they think that the New Age is a Christian movement or that it's supported by the Bible. And they have all these Bible verses that they think support these New Age or New Thought teachings that in fact, really the Bible's saying something totally different than what they think it is. And so um, this interview, what it is, is me and Melissa talking, going through uh, 15 different sections of scripture, one at a time, to break down how it doesn't actually teach new age or new thought things, and then explaining, not only that, but explaining the meaning, the biblical meaning, the right understanding of those challenging passages. So if you're a new age or new thought influenced or in a church that is, then this video could potentially change your life. And I hope you'll pay attention and really think it through with us. And we're really just trying to help. And if you uh, aren't, if you're not influenced by those things, then maybe you want to watch this video for training because you probably know someone who is. And maybe in this discussion, as Melissa represents the New Age view and I represent the biblical Christian view, as you see this discussion, it can be a model for how you can have a discussion with someone else to talk to them about these um, wrong ideas. And so I'm going to present this to you. Um, if you're interested in Melissa Doherty's channel, I put a link in the description for that as well. The interview was done on her channel originally, so you can actually watch it there if you like as well. And um, she does a lot of New Age stuff. She's a former New Age New Thought person. Um, I think she categorizes herself as more New Thought. Uh, anyhow, I hope this is a huge blessing to you. God bless you. Hi, everybody. I am really excited for today's video. I have one of my favorite um, apologists, pastors on YouTube, and hopefully one of yours soon, too, Mike Winger. Um, this is his mug, by the way. Not to plug it. I just really like tea. Mm. <laughs> it's a nice mug. <laughs> it's a nice mug. It's handmade. But you can order this, by the way, if you want to. We're going to do a video together today. I asked Mike to do this a few months ago um, after I did my Law of Attraction video. It was a very good video. It was well done. I was on fire when I did it. But one of the main questions that I keep getting almost every day, I get this question very frequently, is what verses specifically are used in the law of attraction that are taken out of context, not just the law of attraction, but word of faith teachings as well. People don't recognize word of faith teachings because they think that it's in the Bible. They think, oh, they're using scripture. Oh, but they're backing it up backing it up with scripture. What I asked Mike to do is because um, I really respect his views on things and how he kind of has a really balanced view of scripture. I asked him to kind of define these scriptures. I took maybe about 15 of them. Uh, There's hundreds guys that they take, but I took about 15, asked him to look it over. I'm going to read them off and kind of just hand it to Mike and, uh, you know, see how he can define them, which by the way, Mike, thank you for being here. (laughs) It is my privilege and pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And this is, here's what I love about what we're doing right now is like, um, this is going to meet people right where they need it. If they've been exposed to a lot of attraction or new age teachings and stuff like that, or those same teachings infiltrating into churches Mm -hmm. and they hear it and they go, I don't know about that, but they don't, they need help working through it. And, um, and we know this, that like Satan quotes scripture. Yes. (laughs) Satan uses scripture when he comes to tempt Jesus. He uses scripture. So 
we, we can't just see them using scripture. We have to discern and evaluate and think it through. And hopefully this will help people do that. Yeah, I have to say one of the things that is going to bother me, even reading one verse, is not reading the 10 before and the 10 after, because context is uh, a paramount to this, which I'm pretty sure you'll get into whenever you get into the scriptures. But oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so without further ado, um, these are in no particular order. I just took the scriptures that I know uh, that me, I personally, I took years to unlearn some of these. Personally, I had to reread it and reread it and redefine it, ask questions. Um, and then I took ones that others, you know, might hear a lot from the pulpit of a word of faith church or read in a law of attraction book or from a new thought teacher, things like that. But the first one I'm going to start with is John 10, 10, John 10, 10. We hear a lot from word of faith preachings more than anything. I would say, Basically, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly, is John 10.10. And this is basically used to express how Jesus came to give us a prosperous life. We're supposed to live in abundance. We're supposed to have prosperity. We're supposed to have blessings from God. And we're supposed to have abundant experience and encounter of the Holy Spirit. Mike, can you define that? Um, Well, yeah. In a sense, I want to say I totally agree. But obviously Jesus, he wants us to have an abundant life and he came to give us that abundant life, implying that without him, you don't get it right. Like I came to give it to you. Like, and if you don't have me, you're not going to get this abundant life, but how they're defining abundant life. Like this is, this is to me what really comes down. So let me give you an analogy to Mm -hmm. maybe it'll help people understand this, this concept. It's pretty simple. Um, I have a, a friend who gave me these earbuds for like my birthday. I think it was. And they were these off-brand earbuds. They look like the Apple earbuds that like work in your phone or your ears that are, you know, Bluetooth and all this, mm-hmm. but they never worked right. They didn't sync right. Only one worked at a time. And then the sound was really low quality because they were a cheap imitation. And he didn't realize it. He just knew that they were on sale. <laughs> <laughs> they were really, really cheap. So he got them and they ended up not being real. And so I was like gracious, but, um, but I'm hoping he doesn't watch this uh, video because <laughs> I don't want, I don't want to make him feel bad. But this is, this is what we're getting. The, the version of abundant life mm-hmm. that, the, that the word faith movement talks about, prosperity preachers talk about, and uh, New Age stuff talks about is a cheap imitation of what Jesus is talking about mm-hmm. in John 10. So in John 10 in context, before he says like, you know, I've come to give you abundant life, he talks about how he's the good shepherd and he's come to lay his life down for the sheep. This describes Jesus as someone who's unpowerful, <laughs> poor, weak, and who dies for others, a premature, painful death. And that's how he shows us his love. And in, in this, he says, look at me now, I'm going to give you the abundant life, but the abundant life, you see, it's, it's not about uh, prosperity. It's in this, in this life immediately. It's not about your best life right now, mm-hmm. it's about your, your best life forever. That's the idea. So let me give you some examples. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus says, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Mm-hmm. This is really key wow. because he's saying that like your life, they think abundant life is about possessions, right? Mm-hmm. Well, he says your life doesn't consist in the abundance of your possessions. So when Jesus talks about abundant, abundant life, he's not speaking of that. In fact, he warns against covetousness or looking around at all the things you want, want, want. And the Bible calls that a type of idolatry. Mm-hmm. So this is actually a cheap imitation. It's, it's, a, it's not a good thing. So those things aren't the thing. Um, in Luke 12, he also goes on to say, um, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. 
So food and clothes, he goes, don't worry about that. And explains why, because life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Life is so in this, in this scriptures, Jesus is saying that life is a whole lot more than, um, you know, the type of thing prosperity preachers are talking about. Mm -hmm. What is life then to Jesus? If it's not about drawing near to me, you know, naming and claiming it better job, better business, you know, bigger family, bigger, more and more and more stuff and things and people in my life. In John 14, 6, Jesus explains what he means by life. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the father except through me. Mm -hmm. He's the only way to get to the father, to have a a real relationship with God is through Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that is life. In John 17, 3, he really narrows it down more and says, this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Mm-hmm. So abundant life is a relationship with God. Mm. Abundant life is an eternal relationship with God, where the things of this world that prosperity preachers and new age things focus on, that those things seem cheap compared to the glory of knowing Christ. This, this should seem like a cheap imitation. If I think Jesus came to be my cosmic vending machine, right? That he's going to like, give me more stuff or I need a better car. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I need better physical health. And, and my life is hanging on things and health and all that. I'm missing out. I have, the, I have the cheap imitation. I don't have like the abundant life God has given to me. So the life Jesus talks about is better than sort of the new age or prosperity gospel life in a couple ways. One is this thing that we have now is better than physical things because it's a relationship with God, a treasure beyond any suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, it is to know Christ. And also the second way it's better is it's eternal, not temporary. All the things prosperity preachers talk about are things that are just going to burn, right? They're all going to burn. They're all going to be gone one day. And this should get to us. I remember playing Monopoly when I was a kid. I'd be playing a game of Monopoly. And I was really good. Like I always beat my family and then they didn't want to play me. I've never finished a game before in my life. Yeah, I was was a good little capitalist when I was a kid. (laughs) And uh, anyway, I would conquer the game and I'd win them. At the end of the game, I'd have all this money, all these $500 bills, you know, and then I would put them all away and I would be exactly the same as before I played the game. I had no money. <laughs> and this is, this is the, the, the sadness analogy. of thinking that uh, my life, you know, my abundant life is based on the things I possess in this world. Mm-hmm. All this stuff is the monopoly game that will be put away one day. And all that will matter is my relationship with God, the people I know in Christ, and the glories that are to come. And I want to be storing up the treasures for, for heaven, for that eternal thing, and not for just this temporary, momentary mm-hmm. pleasures that tend to be based very much on self and not on God. So th- this is, uh, if I can give you some more scripture on this, Philippians yeah, yeah. 3, uh, Paul talks about both these aspects, like the eternal goodness outweighing the temporal stuff, you know, and mm-hmm. also the relationship with God being better than all of the things all of the things that we might think of in our, in our uh, law of attraction mentality. Yeah. So in Philippians 3, 7, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Mm-hmm. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He's like, they're nothing. Mm-hmm. All the things I lost, whether it be friends, whether it be finances, whether it be physical health, whether it be approval in, in society, all that, nothing. It's nothing, he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. 
at not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, that I may know him. That's mm-hmm. a relationship, right? The abundant life is to know Christ, yes. that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. It may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So we get this, that the apostles were not wealthy. Jesus was not wealthy. They suffered martyrdom and all sorts of hardships and none of it mattered compared to the glory of what is coming and to know Christ right now. The confusion is, is they have a cheap imitation of abundant life. Yeah. Thinking that it, it, it consists of things you, even if you get them, you can't keep them. And what a sad um, imitation. That's actually a really good breakdown because the point of bringing up Paul in prison is that if you're going to take that scripture about living an abundant life, just look at the apostles, like look no farther than the apostles who walked and talked with Jesus mm-hmm. An abundant life in to the Christian is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's about our relationship with him. And I think that's, you mentioned health before. I think that's a hard concept for people that have health issues too. And I, I repeatedly always say, is Jesus enough? If you never got the healing, if you never got, you know, financial blessing, um, would he be enough? You know, and I think that that is really what that's about. The abundance of the Christian life is Jesus and Jesus alone. All right. Next one on the list. This can kind of be tied in with a few other scriptures. So I think these ones we're going to kind of put together. Acts 20, 35 is the first one. It is more blessed to give than to receive one little sentence in Acts. And then Paired together with Mark eleven twenty four and Matthew twenty one twenty two, which are parallel scriptures. If this is a big one, if you believe with, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So it's more blessed to give than to receive. And if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Basically, this embodies the golden rule uh, to a new ager, and everybody that's been a new age knows exactly how I'm going to explain this. I'm sure. Whatever you give, you get back. Because whatever, everything's a mirror, a cosmic mirror. So however you treat somebody, you will get that treatment back. And whatever you ask the universe, whatever you ask God, if that's the vibrational setting that you're putting out there to the universe or to God, to source, however you wanted to define him back then, you had to get it back. It's basically a law of attraction scripture. Uh, People like Wayne Dyer, Eckhart Tolle, Rhonda Byrne, Esther Hicks, they will use scriptures like this to kind of back up what they believe. It's also why a lot of them seem so happy all the time is because if they're thinking that they're putting off negative energy, they'll get that negative energy back. Break it down, Mike. What does it mean? What is the the Christian definition, scriptural definition of this? Okay. Well, I'm, you know, I'm trying to wrap my head around this stuff because, you know, because I started with scripture and then heard these things later, it was like, wait, what are they getting at here? (laughs) Um, and, And so, you know, maybe it could take, cause someone to take pause that when you just start with only the Bible, you really don't come to these things. You, you uh-huh. need gurus. You need these gurus for these teachings. Yes. Um, vibrations. Like I don't read about this anywhere in the Bible. This is like um, the use of things like quantum physics and dark energy. Um, I know at least enough about quantum physics and dark energy to know that has nothing to do with, you know, their usages, but more importantly, the biblical passages don't have anything to do with those usages. Let's take the Acts 20 example. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Okay, it's more blessed to give than to receive. The biblical view of this is that it's not about giving to get, which it seems to be that that's the, the new age perspective. 
I'm giving in order to get. And that's what makes it more blessed, which is their way of saying it's more blessed to get by giving. Um, let me just give the biblical view sure. is that we're not giving to receive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're giving to give. And that's the blessing. Mm-hmm. And that's it. That's all there is to it. It reverses the idea of, of giving to receive. It, the law of attraction uh, becomes a, a trigger for covetousness and selfishness that undoes, that undoes the goodness of my giving. Mm-hmm. effectively. Like Jesus says, you know, like, Hey, you know, beware of the hypocrites. He talks about these Pharisees and they have ulterior motives for doing good things. And that's ends up being um, a real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not about tapping into universal powers of love, whatever, whatever that is seen to be right. Yeah. It's, it's about actually loving people like Jesus did mm-hmm. and delighting in them and enjoying giving for the sake of them being blessed. Full stop. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right. It, so it doesn't say you, you get more if you give more. So mm-hmm. give more. That's not a, a biblical view, I don't think at all. No. And it's not really the act of love. And and so in marriage, we have a good illustration of this, right? Like if you do something for your spouse, you know why you did it um, based on whether when, they, when they're not grateful, <laughs> when you give them something or do something for them and they have no gratitude and then you're all mad at them for it, mm-hmm. you did it for you. Right? Mm-hmm. I did it to get them to respond to me. I did it to get them to be nice to me. I was using a kindness to manipulate. But if I do that something for them and find out they, they're not grateful and, and, and I go, oh, oh, I guess that didn't really bless them. But my point was to bless them. So I'm not upset. I'm just learning about my spouse, you know, um, and it shows us what our real motives are. We have a hard time finding our real motives, but sometimes things like that can reveal them. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some biblical principles about giving and getting I want to mention real quick. Um, we, we know that God provides and God takes care of us, but we're not giving so he will give us more in return. Rather, it's just like this, Lord, I know you'll give me enough to survive. And so I can be free in my giving to others because you'll provide my needs, Mm -hmm. my necessities, and it liberates me to give to others. It doesn't mean that if I have a million dollars and I give a million dollars away, I'll get 2 million. Mm -hmm. Like if you give a million dollars away, you will have $0. (laughs) That's the law of math. (laughs) And yet if you're doing such a thing, you know, in service of Christ, in wisdom and in kindness and love, I can trust that God will provide my needs. Yes. I won't probably ever have another million dollars, but it's more blessed to give than to receive anyways. So it frees me to give. That's the idea. It, it liberates me from the idea that reception, receiving has anything to do with my giving. Provision does. God provides for me, but I, I don't worry about what I get back. Nice. Um, yeah. First Timothy 6.5 talks about this. It says, that there are people who are thinking that godliness is a way of, of gaining profit, of mm-hmm. getting things, and that this is actually a, a, a depraved idea. It's pretty, let me read this text yeah. to you. It's a really strong refutation. It says, people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Whoa. Yeah. It's, it really rails hard against the idea that I'm going to get stuff by giving. Um, and then verse six, the next verse, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And that biblical word contentment means you're just okay with whatever you've already got. Like how Paul was content in any situation he was in. Exactly. Exactly. So, so giving um, and godliness and all this, it's never a, a, a it's, it's not a law of attraction. It, it turns love into selfishness, the law of attraction, the whole concept, it seems mm-hmm. to turn love into selfishness. For people that are watching this is what happens when you take one scripture 
and you make a whole doctrine or belief out of it. And you will hear me and Doreen say all the time that context, like never read a Bible verse. Greg Kokel says that never read a Bible verse. And this is why is that what, what Mike just quoted first Timothy, if you were to read scripture in context as a whole, you would read a scripture like Acts twenty thirty five and know instinctively that means something different because you're taking the rest of scripture. There's truth in everything, but not everything is true. So whenever you come at it, like, like how Mike started off the whole thing by saying, if you were to read the Bible alone, you would never come up with these beliefs. You would never get Mormonism. You would never get Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses. You would never get Catholicism. You wouldn't get a lot of these religions by just reading the Bible. You would, you would get those religions by taking a few scriptures here and there and kind of piecing it together and making your own worldview. So I just kind of want to throw that out there right now while I remember to mention that, that this, this is what happens. So you, you have to read the whole paragraph, read the whole chapter, the whole book. Um, compare translations. You don't understand the translation the translation you're reading, get a few of them and read them side by side. From the new age perspective, they really believe in the power of words, right? Oh yes. And words that's a word really, of faith thing. Yeah. yeah. And there's an element of truth to that. I think it's mm-hmm. taken out of context, but there's an element of truth to that. And if I can take advantage of that in the mm-hmm. mind of anybody who's watching, who's part of word faith or new age movement. And it's like, words are powerful, right? They're very important. And here we have in the Bible, the words of God. Mm-hmm. And those words are really important and they are really powerful and taking them out of context is really dangerous. Um, We should let God say what he says, right? If God certainly would care if you took his words and twisted them to your own purposes instead of his Mm -hmm. Uh, definitely. Um, But let me, let me share with you on the Mark and uh, Matthew passages you mentioned about prayer because prayer is a a big issue. And I get, because these statements are really extreme. Let me read them to you. I get where people can be confused. In Mark eleven twenty four, Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not one of those who wants to water down what Jesus says. Okay. Mm-hmm. He's like, believe that you've received it and it's yours. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty bold and, and sweeping statement. And so faith, the point is faith is a huge factor in prayer, huge factor in prayer and uh, believing God and believing about the things that we're praying for, believing that we're receiving them is actually a really important thing. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know any way to water that down. So here's where they'll be like, see, Mike's, Mike's word of faith, name it and claim it. <laughs> but here's where I, I say, I say, yeah, but that's not the only thing Jesus ever said about prayer. You know, like mm-hmm. he said a lot of things about prayer. And um, so like, it'd be like if I was giving you driving instructions and I said, um, you know, stay to the right. Uh, you know, and I'm, and I, and that's my driving. And you take that one instruction. That's like the only driving rule there is now for life. Stay to the right. Mm-hmm. And then you die because you can't apply <laughs> that thing in every situation, in every scenario, no matter what. And so, um, yeah, faith is a huge factor. Um, but it's not the only one. It's not the only factor we read in scripture that we are, um, that if, if we, uh, in James, that if we ask to fulfill our own pleasures, yes, then we ask amiss Mm-hmm. And that we do not receive answers for those prayers. We, we read in first John that if we pray anything according to his will, I just wrote that down literally. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah so, it, so, Oh, there's other issues. So my faith is huge, but God's will trumps that. But, mm-hmm. but asking for things that are, you know, according to my pleasures, no matter how much faith I've got, eh, 
wrong, not going to be answered. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss to fulfill your own pleasures, it says in James. That was the verse that um, when I was coming out of the new thought, one of the verses that just kind of made me sit down heavy was that verse in James. Mm. Whatever you ask, you ask with selfish motives. Like you don't get it because you're asking. I want to say James 4, the beginning of the chapter there. Yeah. Uh, There's more though. Uh, In Matthew 6.10, Jesus is giving us the model prayer, right? Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Mm Mm-hmm your will be done. This is in the model prayer. Like this is like the static understanding of what every prayer should be like. It doesn't have to always be the word for word, the same prayer, but the ideas that are in here should be in all our prayers. Your will be done, God. But there are many who come as though prayer is a way of exercising my own will and getting God to bend to my will. That's what it kind of becomes. Uh, But the idea is I want God's will to be done. And that's why if we ask according to his will, he hears us. Now, I don't always know what God's will is. Maybe someone out there does, but I haven't met that person, (laughs) you know? And so um, I would say the bottom line is they have a truth about prayer. Faith is huge, really important. But it's taken out of context uh, of the other truths about prayer. And it's all of the truths about a thing that help us understand it thoroughly and stay away from, you know, weird, weird stuff where you have this people trying to push their own will to accomplish their own desires because they've taken one verse out of the rest of scripture. Yeah. And it's kind of the, the consequences of this verse being taken out of context are quite interesting because if you ask anything, if if you were to take it literally, like I I have an eight year old and eight year old, you don't know what you know about the Bible till you have a child asking you about it. Right. (laughs) You know, like it's like, Oh, I don't know. How do you explain this to an eight year old? Hmm. One of the things she asked was that she's also in so many questions, she's basically saying, well, why doesn't God just give us all what we want kind of thing? You know, it's like that, that scene in, uh, gosh, that movie with Jim Carrey in it where he plays God for a day or something and he gets, it's ridiculous and very theologically unsound. And I, I watch, I watch Bible movies or movies that are like that just to pick them apart. My husband gets on me. He hates watching movies like that with me, but um, like he, he's going through all the emails and he's like, I don't know how to answer them. So he says yes to everybody. And then, then chaos breaks out. Um, That's kind of what I see in my mind. Um, And that's kind of how I explained it to her. I'm like, it's, it's giving so much power to people that people think they have, you know, that if you were to give everybody everything they asked for and everything they wanted, there would be no end to the selfish desires that would be met. Yeah. And I yeah. told her that's why it's within his will. Like there has to be, there's rules to this, you know, like there, you can't just, you know, believe and receive and have enough faith and get it all the time, you know? And so that's kind of how I explained it to her is that the consequences of believing that are you, you believe things that you think can actually happen. I remember as a kid thinking I could walk through walls, like move things with my mind. And because scriptures like this were quoted to me. Mm. that I could transport and go places and um, Mm. make unicorns exist. Literally. (laughs) It's like you're tapping into this power out there in the universe that you can another dimension. Yeah. Instead of you're, you're making your requests, requests, not demands known to God. Yes. He's the power. He's the one in control and he has a will of his own. But could you imagine like how this would play out? Like there's a Christian who's, you know, a farmer and they're praying for rain for their crops 
And so it starts to rain and then Kenneth Copeland comes by in his private jet and he's <laughs> flying by and he's like rebuking the rain because the storm's going to mess up his flight plans. Yeah. And so, he, so then the rain must stop, of course. And then the farmer prays and he's like, no, I need extreme rain. I need it right now. And so boom, major storm, you know, happens and somebody else says, well, there's a big storm. So they pray that it changes course and goes somewhere else. And someone else is on the road praying that, no, don't let it come to me. It's just, it's, it's inane. Mm-hmm. Um, to just, just to think that if you get a crowd of a, a hundred people that all know each other and you, you just ask that all their desires would be met, how many of them, especially if they're like early 20s, teens, are praying that a certain person will become their spouse yeah. and that person's praying that someone else will become their spouse? We need God's will. Mm-hmm. We don't know what's going on. You know, right? we're, we're narrow-minded. We're self, self-focused, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And we need God to say no to many of our prayers according to his purposes and plans. And then things that we think that may not be... Like, why would God allow me to be sick? Why would God allow bad things, you know? And that's, that's where our, that's where we kind of take it down to understanding that there are certain things that we may not be able to understand because we're human, but understanding God's sovereignty and and the control that he's in. And both of us have made videos on this, by the way, I'm sure about things like this, like how does, you know, scripture reconcile, but it's, it's that faith factor and knowing that. Um, we're not in control and that he is. The next two that I'm going to ask you about, one of them was probably the last one I had to unlearn in the new age. It was a very difficult one. And it's Matthew 7, 7, basically Matthew 7. I call it like the new age chapter. If, if new age, new thought teachers were to take any book out of the Bible and kind of just rearrange it for what they want, it would be the book of Matthew. They love messing with the gospel of Matthew, but Matthew 7 in particular uh, is one that they'll use a lot. And both of these are in Matthew. I'll read both of them. First one, Matthew 7, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 2. A lot of people are going to know this one. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When I was in the law of attraction, this was one that was quoted a lot. They would have this huge, long teaching about basically what you, um, what you do to others, you do to yourself. It goes back to that whole mirror concept that whatever's out there and whatever you put out in the universe, you will get back. So don't judge because if you judge, you'll get back judgment. Um, and it's a very peaceful coexist, harmonious kind of life set and mindset. And that's the scripture that they use. And that is repeated again in Mark four twenty four and John six thirty seven on so many words. So unpack that, Mike, what does that mean? Uh, well, it seems to me that there's there's a truth in this, right? I mean, yes, yeah. It's just I would say that there's something missing in the information, and so let me see if I can respond by first affirming, right, that yeah, the way you judge, you'll be judged. Yeah, the way you treat others, you'll be treated mm-hmm. to an extent, um, and 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 yet there's a personal God behind it, and not just sort of like a blind force sort of causing, you know, action and reaction to take place. It's more like God's judgment that's actually taking place at some point in the future. But let's talk about this idea of who you are to judge in Matthew 7, because I want to talk about how it's maybe imbalanced. And um, in Matthew 7, we're told, judge not lest you be judged, right? Um, but the, the person who tells you, okay, so don't judge, they say, stop judging. Are they're, judging. they're judging you. Yeah. They're judging you to even mm-hmm. say that you're not, to say that you shouldn't judge. So obviously they don't think it's wrong to disapprove of what other people are doing because they're disapproving of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. It becomes almost like a, 
like a one way, you know, mirror, like they, they can, they can use it against you, but it doesn't work on them. And that's how I often hear it used in our culture today. Yeah. This idea of not judging, it becomes a sort of one way thing. We, when I say don't judge, what I mean is we're judging you Stop <laughs> what you're doing. <laughs> that's what I really mean. Yeah. And so it becomes kind of nonsensical. So what did Jesus like actually mean mm-hmm. when he said about this whole thing in judging? Well, it's, it's clear in the context. We just have to read the verses. Mm-hmm. He says, judge not that you be not judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And that's all they quote, but yeah. we need to read on. Keep Jesus reading. didn't stop talking there. He said, <laughs> why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, there's a problem. And the problem is you judge others without judging yourself. Mm-hmm. See, if, if, if I look at you and I say, I think what you're doing is wrong, I need to be looking at me to find out what I'm doing wrong too. Mm-hmm. So I don't quit all judgment. I just stop pointing it at others and I also point it at me. Mm-hmm. I deal with this log in my eye, this, the big problems of my life. I've got to deal with these before, between me and God, me and other people. I've got to deal constantly with the issues that come up in my heart and life. I need to deal with those things. I need to judge myself. Then I can judge fairly other people and I won't be like a blind hypocrite. Like I'll actually help them because I'm humbled. I know my position. I know my weaknesses. I know my failures. And I'm in a position now after having like self-judged, discerned my own issues to be able to help others with their issues humbly and not as like a hypocrite. That's key because a lot of people, I don't know about you, Mike, but I get a lot of emails saying you shouldn't judge at all. Like, you know, especially with some of the videos that, you know, we're, we're talking about bringing certain maybe teachers or teachings into light and disagreeing with them. But this is what I really like about the way you broke that down is that you're first checking yourself. You're making sure a, that you're not in sin, that we're not, um, that we're not guilty of what we're, you know, bringing them to of the things that we're holding them accountable to, especially teachers. And we're humbling ourselves. We're making sure that we're doing it in the right spirit. We're not bashing. We're not exposing, you know, like how some people just go off the deep end. The heart is in the right place. It's done in the right spirit. I think that's important because Jesus says, once that's done, then you can go to your brother and bring this grievance or, you know, then you can basically judge properly. Like there's an improper and proper way to judge. So I kind of wanted to emphasize that because I liked that. I liked that it was, it wasn't just that you don't judge. It's check yourself first, like make sure that you're not just in this negative festering mindset before you actually go out and, and render judgment. Yeah. And and there's an ironic application of this, which is the person who tells you don't judge. Yes. And they misunderstand that they're actually doing the judging of you at that moment. They're the one with the log in their eye because they're telling you don't judge, but they haven't even reflected on their own statement yet. They haven't yeah. even thought about their own position yet. And it's like, but you're judging me and you're telling me not to judge. Like you're the hypocrite with the log in your eye. Stop the madness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah at that point. And, um, and yeah, we just, we just need to, uh, to self-reflect first, deal with my own issues first, and then actively go out there and help other people with their problems, which they do have. Mm-hmm. Of course they have just like I have and you have, mm-hmm. and we do need help, but we need help from humble people who've dealt with their own issues um, before God so that they're not just, dumping their garbage on us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're helping us. Yeah. Yeah. I like to use Paul too, as an example, because he kind of went out to tell, because I made a video about this, about not judging, because it's something I'm actually really passionate about because I used to do this all the time. 
in the new age. It was just don't judge anybody for their actions for anything like that. So once I unlearned that, it was just, you know, easy to talk about correctly. But uh, Paul, Paul's a great example of this because Paul basically was a Pharisee, became a Christian, a disciple rather, and went and basically told other people to repent, you know, like stop doing what you're doing because Jesus is the way. And nowadays that's a very judgmental thing to do, you know, repent of your ways and, and turn to the only way, you know, uh, of salvation, which is in Jesus. So I think that's interesting that people neglect the rest of scripture and the story of the, the disciples and the apostles, that that's what they did. And that's what we are supposed to do. The spirit in which we do it does matter though. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the Bible kind of breaks down good judging and bad judging in different yes. ways. So like, it'll actually say like, uh, good judging is dealing with your own issues and then having correct, not, not self-righteous judgments, but correct judgments about other people to help them, right. To yes. benefit them. Um, it's, uh, it is in exposing the major issues that are going on in the world. And this is what all the prophets did. This is what Jesus did. And the apostles did. They can, like you said, Paul confronted the sin mm-hmm. issues of his culture, but always, with a desire to see them come to God, yes. right? And they didn't, maybe they didn't like it, but who likes getting bad news? <laughs> nobody likes it, but it's needful. Like the doctor needs to tell me what's wrong with me. Yeah. Um, so that's a good thing. But there's another bad kind of judgment. And that is when we call evil good or we call good evil. Mm-hmm. The, the Bible's really strict about this. It's like, don't you dare say that bad things are okay. And don't you say that okay things are bad. Mm-hmm. And when I say never judge anyone, I'm also sort of saying whatever they're doing is okay. And so I, I kind of end up, they like me, but I end up approving of things that are hurtful to them, hurtful to the people around them. And so I end up not really benefiting them except that they, they know they like me because I'm so kind and approve, you know, approving. Yeah. But that's kind of just being a people pleaser, I think, and not really helping. I always say that it's usually the, the people that you surround yourself with, the, the best friends that you have are the ones that don't always tell you what you want to hear. So we're going to go to Matthew 7, 7. This is probably, uh, for me personally, the biggest one on this whole list. And a lot of people will resonate with this too, uh, because this goes back to Mark eleven twenty four. 24, ask um, whatever you believe. We might even bounce off more off of that, but Matthew 7, 7. Uh, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds and him who knocks the door will be opened. This, this verse is the life verse of so many new agers. Esther Hicks um, channels an entity, a group of consciousness is what it is named Abraham. Abraham the author is, of the, the, the book, right? The, um, the attraction, law of attraction, law of attraction. And there's many others to, to new agers that are into this. There's more laws than just that. But one of them is, uh, is there's a book that's written by this entity. It's channeled book called ask, believe and receive. Basically it's based on this scripture and everything that surrounds this teaching is on this scripture. Break it down. What does this mean, Mike? Um, well, I, I think it means a lot of things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's tough because then, as, uh, you know, in, in trying to explain these things, you, you're thinking like, how do I reach someone who has the mentality yeah. that, that has been propagated by Esther Hicks and these other people? It also ties what we said about Matthew or about Mark eleven twenty four as well. Yeah. Yeah. But there's like a, a okay, there's a, a basic general idea that I think we want to expose. And that is the idea that God just gives you whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Like, full stop. There's nothing else. Like kind of like the previous verse, you know, where it was like, 
ask and believe that's it. There's nothing else to this story. There's nothing relational. There's nothing about God's will. There's nothing about your motives. There's none of that. Right. Um, but just imagine like as a parent, if you operated under that policy, you just told your daughter, whatever you ask for, I'll give it to you. Whatever you want, you can have it. Like this would be terribly unhealthy for children. <laughs> yes. But it would be equally bad for adults. Um, it would be very bad for us, to be honest. And so this needs to be taken in context of having character that's transformed into the likeness of Christ, into loving God first and not yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the point Jesus is making is that is that prayer really is this thing where you're relying on God for everything. And you're trusting in him and you can, you can go to him. You can go to him for everything. Whereas people might feel distance from God. Like, what does he care about me? Why can I really appeal to God for help? But I don't want to treat him like he's a force to be manipulated. Yes. You know, that I can, you know, it's like in, in Star Wars, it's, it's a force and I can use the force and interact with the force. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but this isn't the idea. I don't want to bend God to my will. We've talked about that already. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think the law of attraction can potentially really ruin people. And I know of a student uh, who went to my church who was really ruined by the law of attraction. Really? Yeah. She read the book. She had some videos that she'd watched online about it. And it turned her into this like real narcissist. Hmm. Where she, it, I mean, I counseled with her multiple times in private about all these issues and stuff. And it just really ruined her hmm. uh, because it was teaching her whatever she wants. She just has to want it and want it and want it. That you're a powerful being. And that you, you can, you can possess whatever you want and need because yeah. you're basically the center of the universe. Yeah, effectively that that's the impact it had. And that's, that's basically idolatry, self idolatry. And mm-hmm. so it, it really messed her life up, unfortunately. Wow. Um, so this, again, it's only part of the story on prayer, just to remind us, right. And James, yeah. it's James four, three, that's the verse you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In first John five fourteen, he says, um, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Mm-hmm. So we see prayer as a place of yielding where we offer requests, but we bend to his will. And Jesus models this for us because when he's in the garden of Gethsemane about to go to the cross, mm-hmm. he says, if, you know, if it's, if there's any other way, let this cut pass. Like, I don't want to have to go to the cross. Then he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Right. So Jesus himself, who has obviously a, a, an understandable desire to not go through the crucifixion, he's exposing to us the need for the cross. Like there is no other way for us to be saved. We need him to go to the cross. But he's modeling for us. Right. This is written for our sakes. Yeah. He's modeling for us the example of praying, even in the most dire and painful circumstances. You have your requests, you make them known, but you yield to God and his will because his plans are, are, are good. Ultimately, even if you can't see it or feel it in the moment. That's a great point. To, to springboard off of that, the first thing that comes to my mind with people who aren't receiving healing specifically, how would you talk to somebody? Because what I see repeatedly, um, especially this year, because I'm new to learning about a lot of this stuff, this, this hyper charismatic stuff that's going on. I'm very much a student of it. But one of the things that I keep hearing is God should always heal 100% of the time should always heal. If you are in a position where you're not, you know, getting what you're believing for, if you're not getting your healing and then maybe somebody else does, how would you break that down to that person? How, how scripturally would you say that? Cause everything you just said makes so much sense to me, but it is an offense to somebody else who says, no, God should always give me my healing. God should always give me my supernatural encounter. I need to have enough faith. What would you say to that? 
Um, sometimes God's plans are bigger mm-hmm. than our plans and better. And as, as difficult as this might be to swallow, but remember the analogy I gave you earlier about the whole, like the cheap replacement of abundant life versus the abundant life that Christ was talking about. Yeah. That immediate healing is as important as it is, as valuable as it is. Don't get me wrong. Right. Like I have issues that I want healed. Yeah, me too. Right. I've had chronic back problem for quite a while now. (laughs) Prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, you know, and yet I trust in God that he's using it for his glory in my life. I don't think it's a lack of prayer or faith. I think it's his will. Why? Because I've prayed and trusted and I've sought prayer with others and I, and I go, well, God's using it. And this is not just my idea. This is what scripture tells us. And I think Paul, the apostle gives us, well, Jesus gives us a great example. He, he doesn't get healing. He dies on the cross, mm-hmm. right? For the salvation of all mankind and for this glorious eternal experience. So it, it was worth it. It was better than him bypassing the cross. Mm-hmm. And sometimes our situations are actually better. We just have a hard time seeing it because we're still, you know, pre-resurrection. Basically, we're not on the good side. We're not in the benefit of those sufferings yet. Um, but here's an example in Second Corinthians 12. This is the famous passage, and every word faith movement has to explain it away. Mm-hmm. But this is Paul's thorn in the flesh. But let's read it and just gather a few important points. Whether you think it was a physical illness or not is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Let's read it and think about it. He says that uh, in Second Corinthians 12:7. So to keep me from being conceited or arrogant because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So God had revealed things to Paul and he was like, he knew so much and seen so much that something had to keep him humble. And he says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. So he's got this evil demonic thing going on, whether it's physical illness, spiritual attack, it's obviously something really unpleasant, right? We can agree there. Yeah. You know, because I don't care if it's a spiritual attack or a physical illness or job stress, all of these things are the same thing. Not pleasant in my life, right? Not prosperity. I'm suffering here. They're all suffering. And so he's suffering and it's given to him by, by ultimately God, even though it's has a demonic, some kind of demonic element to it. The reason for it is uh, telling. Yeah. To keep him humble. Yeah. So So in God's view, Paul's humility was more important than Paul's prosperity or sense of well-being. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of mind-blowing. What a perfect scripture for that. Yeah. God cares more about my character than he does about my health. Your comfort. And I should too. Yeah. Um, But then he goes on in verse eight. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, and here's God's response. Paul, obviously a man of great faith the apostle Paul, right? And God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he's clearly saying, Paul, I, I want you to be weak because when you are weak, you rely on my grace for your life. And it is my strength that enables you to get through these hard times. And I'm glorified in that. So Paul's response, like what lesson he learned from all this, he says, and he concludes, and this is again, just reading straight through the text, second Corinthians Verse uh, chapter 12, verse nine here. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses of my, I'll be glad. I'll rejoice. I'll boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
that chokes me up a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. And this is this is so sobering. And as I go through hard times that won't leave me through prayer, yeah, I rest on these promises. I rest on these scriptures, and I'm like, Lord, I feel myself relying on you. I feel myself humbled and just trusting in you and just relying upon you right now. And in that, I rejoice because there is this great spiritual benefit through these great physical trials that I'm going through. Amen. That. See, and it's hard for some people because they refuse to hear anything else other than you're going to get your healing. You're going to get your blessing. God will always heal and God will, will come through. And so to keep mm-hmm. their mindset, and this is in my opinion, and I'm going to say this very boldly because I have researched cults since the inception of me coming out of New Thought, it reminds me of a type of mind control because you're told to, cert- to think certain things. And if you stop thinking these certain things, then you're not going to get what you want. Mm. So you're, you're, you're told, think positive, think positive, don't think anything else. And then they, they take scriptures like this to, to plant to them and give to them and say, it's scripture. You're going to get your blessing. Just wait. You're going to get your blessing. Don't think about anything else. Don't speak that into existence. And so they don't. So to hear an alternative view, not even an alternative view, a scriptural view, a, 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 in a contextual view of, of this, um, which I find incredibly beautiful, to be honest, this, that God can use this for his glory. That's a foreign concept to them. Um, thanks for breaking that down. I, I really yeah. like that we followed up with that, with the healing. Cause yeah. And this hope is so much better. Like oh, the, so much better. They have the, the cheap imitation is I'm going to pretend that things are getting better. Even if they don't, even if they That's don't hard to maintain, but the hope that we have, is, I, you don't want to leave you hopeless. The hope is even in the worst of my moments, I'm learning to trust in God and rely on Christ and God's strength is, is, is being made perfect in my weakness. Even then, I can still rejoice in that character transformation and the work of God in my life. And I know not that I'll be healed of this today, mm-hmm. but that eventually I will have glory to come and, ex- and the, the resurrection and exaltation that comes uh, upon the, new, the recreation of all things that God brings. Like I have a much greater hope that's to come. Uh, yeah. It just doesn't mean your best life now. Exactly. Uh, in the sense of best life, physical things, and now being, it's all about today and we can't see beyond this life, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'm, we'll move on in a second, but I kind of want to add this because I have a friend who's chronically ill. We met years ago. She's one of my best friends. She has everything under the sun wrong with her. And she was deeply entrenched in new age, and we met because of um, a Facebook group, group that I run, still sick to this day. And she is basically bedridden and she reads her Bible all the time. And before as a new ager, she had this basically like blind hope. Now as a Christian, I, I believe, I can't remember the scripture, but I believe it was the blind man. It was the blind man, I believe, because the, the disciples and him are walking by and they're, they're saying, what did he do to be born this way? And he said he was, he's like this to bring glory to God, basically, you know, like this was determined. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying that this is to bring glory to God, you know, and he spits on the ground, uses mud and restores him. But I remember her quoting that scripture and she said, you know, I can glorify God that somehow this brings glory to him. And she's just so in love with Jesus. Yeah. And she's sick every day of her life. And she's so in love with Jesus. And I just, I love that. I think that's one of the most beautiful things in the world. Yeah. 
I really do. I really, really do. And I think that there's an element of that that every one of us needs to learn to absorb and appreciate. But I would say it's not that she'll never get her healing. Oh, she will. <laughs> it's just about that delay yes. and, and trusting God and letting him work in this time yeah. because it will come. But the promise is at the resurrection, not necessarily at some point. Yeah. The so the next scripture that we have on the list is Proverbs 23, 7. As a man speaks in his heart, so is he. Basically, again, you'll attract what you'll think think about. This ties into like energies and, a, and attraction. This is something that a lot of word of faith preachers use. And again, this is in Proverbs. So this is something you can't necessarily contextually sometimes uh, take into account. But uh, Solomon helped write most of the Proverbs. This particular proverb, what does it mean? What would this, you know, mean to a Christian? Yeah. Um yeah, so like you said, with context is not as easy in the book of Proverbs as it yeah. is in other books because it's a collection of like sayings, the sayings of the wise. So it's like a, a bunch of clever, wise sayings all crammed together. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you'll have a whole chapter that's on one topic. In this mm -hmm. case, there's a few verses that are all related. So you can give it some context. Verses six through eight is like one section. Proverbs 23, six says, uh, and I'll give it all in context. What does it mean when it says like, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. I think that's New King James Version. Um, it's, it says, uh, do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. So this is really interesting. That, that's the context, right? Like you're, you're, you're with a buddy and you know that they're stingy and they're like, oh no, yeah, go ahead and have some. But, but you know, you know, they don't mean it, right? <laughs> And yeah. so that's the context. For, let, let me read it again. Right? Do not eat the bread of a man who's stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he's like one who's inwardly calculating, eat and drink. He says to you, eat and drink. He says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. Um, and so uh, the, the, the other translation that has the, the, the phrase, um, as he thinks in his heart, so he is. Here's what it really means. It means the inner life reveals the real you. His words don't do it. His thoughts do. So he says, oh yeah, eat and enjoy it. Go ahead. You can have some of my food. But his inner thoughts are, oh man, this guy getting my food and I'm bugged by it. So the real you is the inner thought life you. That's the real you. That's all it's about. It's not about uh, attracting things to you. It's not about getting things. It's about revealing who's the real you, the face you put onto the world and things you say, or the inner thought life of the person. And the Bible's actually really big on this, mm -hmm. the idea that my inner person, my inner thought life, that's the real me. And Jesus, he reinforces this when he's like, Hey, if you look at somebody with lust, mm -hmm. if you look to lust, just, I haven't done anything. I've just, I just looked lust is in my heart. You've committed adultery in your heart. So the real you is the, is in the thought life, which really to me shows me how desperately I need Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the point of the proverb it has nothing to do with getting things, attracting things, just your thought life reveals the real you as you think. So you are. That's actually a really simplistic way to put it too. And it reminds me of Ephesians because uh, I always kind of like to pair James and Ephesians together because this is where faith without works comes in, which has nothing to do with salvation, by the way. I mean, for people watching, um, men cannot see your faith. So there's a certain way that you have to have works that show you have been saved. So like if you're saved and you don't act like you're saved, people are going to wonder about that. And then if you pair it together with Ephesians, though, it's quite beautiful because Paul is saying without faith, I mean, uh, Ephesians 2.10, I mean, it, you're saved by faith, by grace, not by works. 
it's because God can see your heart. So it's like, he can see your inner thoughts. He can see your inward desires. He can see your faith. Um, men can't. So they look at what they can see and they see those works and they go hand in hand, but one has to do everything with salvation and the other is not. It's just a result of your salvation. So that's what that reminds me of when you broke that out. All right. Next one we have is, this is a huge one. This is how a lot of people think that uh, we're gods, we're divine, and hopefully it'll be as simplistic to break down. We have John 10, uh, John chapter 10, verses 34 through 35. And there's a lot more to the passage, but I'll read it. Uh, Jesus answered them. He's talking to the Pharisees because they're bickering together with him. It is, is it not written in your law? I have said, ye are gods. And it goes down basically, you know, to more, but people will take that little scripture. And of course, this is self-explanatory. This is basically Jesus saying we're enlightened. We're divine. Um, Many people have interpreted this passage correctly and beautifully um, and explained it. So what is the biblical view of this passage? Okay. So th- this one actually gets, uh, it just genuinely gets complicated. This is a, a, a passage that is easily becomes complicated. I'll just put it that way. And to do like a full teaching on it, it would take like an hour. So yeah. where's my I'll, Kaiser? offer a summary. <laughs> yeah. I will say this. Um, a lot of people will take weird unbiblical beliefs and they'll try to shoehorn them into tough passages. So you get to a passage and you go, well, that's a difficult passage. I wonder what it means. And then they'll come and they'll cram doctrines that are totally unbiblical. And it, it becomes hard to fight because you just find this to be a challenging passage. So you, you don't think it means what they think, but you're trying to figure out what it means. You know? mm-hmm. um, so let me give you like the short summary. Hopefully it'll help sure. and you can ask questions. Yeah. Um, Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 82 in John 10. He quote, he's quoting Psalm 82. So we need to look at Psalm 82 and ask, what is this about? So I'm going to give you a summary of Psalm 82. Then we're going to read it because it's very short. It's only eight verses. So here's the summary. Um, the leaders of governments or nations or cities, they're being rebuked in Psalm 82 for mm-hmm. ruling unjustly. That's the, the leaders of either governments, nations, or cities. They're being rebuked for judging or ruling unjustly and for not protecting the weak and the fatherless. Um, I, I think that in Psalm 82 is referring to human rulers because, and I'll give you more support. Here's the biblical context, right? In Exodus, when people would go to the rulers, it's said that they're going to God. So they would have a problem and it says, go to God, but the people they're going to are the rulers. And that's the same word referenced in Psalm 82. It's Elohim. Elohim is a much more flexible word in Hebrew than, than the word God in English. So it's a little clumsy when we try to use the term, uh, you know, across languages, but that's where it gets into a long, explanation. So um, also if you ask like, why do, why is it said to be going to God when I'm going to rulers of the people of God? Mm -hmm. Well, the answer is in Romans 13, it's because their authority represents God. Romans 13 tells us that governmental power comes from God and they're there as God's representatives or God's ministers to basically help. I mean, God cares about society and any authority that anyone has in society ultimately comes from God. It reminds me of Moses. Whenever he went before the Pharaoh, he said, you will Mm -hmm. be like God to them. Yeah, you'll be like you're God not, to Pharaoh. That's what the Lord Yeah, says. you're not literally being God, but you are going to represent him. Exactly. Me. Yeah. Okay, so we see, can see the connection between human rulers and God, not in identity, but because of authority they're borrowing from God as they're ruling over other people, and like, mm-hmm. put it that way. So let me read the Psalm 82 uh, to us and uh, point out 
what it means in context. And then we'll see how, why Jesus used it that way. So Psalm 82, it says a Psalm of Asaph, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Now he's, he's rebuking these rulers, these mm-hmm. people that are ruling over others. He says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So there, there's this rebuke. You're not taking care of the needy. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, not, you're not using your power to take care of those who have no power. That's the idea. Government's out of balance, as it usually is, it seems, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, as he goes on in verse 5, he says about these rulers, about these things he calls gods in this text, they, neither, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So they're basically, they're stupid rulers. Like they don't get their job and they're not doing it right. And so God then, now he casts judgment on them. Now here's what's going to happen. He says, I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you, you shall die and yes. fall like any prince. Then it can, so he's going to, he's going to destroy them. Then in verse eight, he concludes the whole Psalm by saying, arise, O God, judge the earth for you shall inherit all the nations. So to summarize Psalm 82, there's these rulers that are unjust. God's going to destroy them. And then in verse eight, he's going to take over the nations himself. When Jesus uses it, the one thing to understand is this is not a comparison. It's a contrast. And that one key really helps us with this. It's like a, how much more thing. Hey, if this can be said of human rulers, how much more can it be said of God who comes in, in human form. Um, and the difference in the Psalm is, or in, in the passage in John 10, Jesus, he makes a contrast between these uh, ye are God's people and himself. Hmm. He says of the ye are God's, they're the ones to whom the word of God came. So they're on earth, the word of God comes to them. But in verse 36, he says, do you, you know, he speaks of himself as the one whom the father consecrated and sent into the world. So they're on the earth, the word of God comes to them. Jesus he comes from heaven, is sent into the world. And he says, hey, if the word of God came to them and they could be in any sense called gods, how much more? How much more can the one who comes from heaven be called, uh, you know, call himself God even? So Jesus is- That's kind of clever because he's basically, he's basically attributing divinehood to himself. And and, yeah. So- Yeah, but he's not giving it to anyone else. He's, He's contrasting- Look at, look at how much greater I am than all of these things. So Jesus is uniquely different. In John, we see this. He's, he's, he's the one who's with God and he is God. Mm-hmm. He's equal with God in John 5. He's the creator of all things in John 1. In, the, in John 10, the same passage, he's in the Father and the Father's in him. In John 8, he calls himself the I am. Yep. Like, so he's clearly God. And what I love about Psalm 82 is this. Um, the last verse, after rebuking these rulers, I said, you're God's yet you're going to die. Mm-hmm. It says that God's going to arise and he's going to judge the earth and God will inherit the nations. That's Jesus's role. He's the inheritor of all nations. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords. Yeah. He inherits all things. So in Psalm 82, eight, God will inherit all things. And Jesus is going to be the one who inherits all things. So this is actually implying the deity of Christ, even so in the Jesus. Psalm. But the, here's the key. Um, oh, I, I should mention one thing before. Uh, some people don't interpret these as human rulers. Yeah. They interpret it as being angelic beings or like um, spiritual forces, of, powerful forces that are sort of behind the human rulers, behind yeah. the nations. And that's, that's fine. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus is doing this contrast. Mm-hmm. He's saying, I'm greater than those things. Um, that's the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, so in no case, under no interpretation, does it make us gods. 
no interpretation was, doesn't make us gods. That's the point. Yeah. Is that's that? The, yeah. Under no interpretation am I now some sort of deity type thing. That was Satan's lie in the garden. Oh, you yes. will be like God. That yeah. was Satan's other lie. He told himself, we read about in Isaiah, where he says, I will be like God. Yeah. Right? Those are I Satan's two big lies. sit on the throne lies. of the Almighty. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you pointed that out, by the way, that this is interpreted in um, different ways. So some, not everybody's in agreement that some, some people think they're human rulers. Other people say that they're divine. Yes. Um, it doesn't matter. And that, that's, a, that's a very interesting you know, study. But in this context, in John 10, no matter how you define it, it doesn't mean what people are saying that it means in the New Age. Yeah, because the people who would disagree and be like, Mike, those aren't human rulers. That's the majority position, but those who would disagree would, um, and with, with that position, they would stand locked arm with me and fully agree. Yeah, he ain't calling people gods. Like, yes. like yeah. and we, that's all, we all agree on that. Like, that's not on the table as an option for this passage. If you look at the rest of the text of scripture, um, we, we can see Jesus is, there's only one God. There's no one like him, the scripture says. There's no one like him. And Jesus comes and he's... He's that one God who's with us. You know, he's, he's God, the son. Um, but there's, there's indeed no idea that humans are like God, right? That was the original lie. That was why the Pharisees, when Jesus claimed to be equal with God, they tried to kill Jesus. They're yeah. going to pick up stones and kill him because the, the only options in the Jewish mind are either you're God or you've blasphemed. So I would say those are still the only two options for mm-hmm. those who say we're little gods, right? Well, which is the word of faith really, teaching. Yeah, either you really are God or you're blaspheming. Well, the scripture shows you're not God, so you're, you're definitely blaspheming. That ties into their belief in uh, having some sort of power to be able to speak things into existence and because we have divine power. So this is not just a new age belief, guys. Like this is in our churches. Yeah. This is word of faith teaching. And that's why they're one and the same is that if you hear from your pastor or whoever's at your pulpit and they're saying that you have, that you are, that you are able, it all ties into this because you're able to speak things into existence and you're able to manifest, visualize, you're able to always have that healing and always have what you want, money, whatever it is. It's because you're divine. It always comes down to this is that they believe scripturally that it says that you're like little, you're little gods. And that's why you are given the power to do these things. And that's why we're breaking this down is that that's not what these scriptures mean at all. In the scripture, when you say that someone creates things, you're saying that they're God. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so I get why they're like, yeah, well, we are gods. You know, like, <laughs> but I'm like, no, 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 no. But God alone creates. Read Isaiah. Like he says, I created all alone. I did it alone. And Everything whatever was created was created through Christ. But if you, John 1, right? Everything that was created was created through Jesus. Yes. Okay. But if I create things. Now we have things that were created that weren't created through Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, may, or maybe you say, well, I'm doing it through Jesus somehow, except yes. that creation's done. There's no more further. There's like a hundred problems every direction when you, <laughs> when you travel down this path, um, we just give up on it entirely. And this is why um, when people, I have a very high view of scripture. And again, with everything that I'm learning this year with uh, some hyper charismatic stuff that's going on there's a high view of experience versus scripture. So that's why in a lot of places and a lot of um, pulpits, you'll find that your encounters and experience will trump scripture. So um, don't put God in a box is something I've been hearing a lot lately. And I, 
he's not in a box, but I am, <laughs> you know, like it, I am within the confines of scripture. It'd be like, if you said to me, like, um, Hey Mike, do you think your wife's going to cheat on you? And I said, Oh no, of course not. I know my wife. She would never do that. And you say, don't put her in a box. <laughs> like, what do you mean? There's no limits to her character. There's no, there's no reliability. There's no things that she said that I can trust that I can say, here's the box she's put herself in. And I trust that, you know, and that's what we're doing with scripture. We're just like, God said this, of course, he's going to keep his word. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. God did these things. He's not going to change his character. And so I'm not putting him in a box. I just know him, you know, and I've learned. Yeah. That's a, that's a very simplistic way to put it. The next one is Romans 417. This is a huge one in word of faith circles. The God that gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Again, this is a speaking into existence. We know why it's used in new age or to thought uh, circles because we've gone through that before. Scripturally speaking in Romans 4.17, what is Paul saying in context? Um, I, I love Romans. Um, so yes. I love Romans four. I appreciate it so much. Um, but let me, so let's back up and get some context. Sure. Romans gives us like the gospel, you know, a big careful explanation of the gospel and what it does in the first, you know, uh, three chapters, it establishes that all of us have sinned and we need salvation, right? We need salvation through Jesus. Um, and then it, it's going to tell us that that salvation comes by faith, that I'm mm-hmm. saved by faith. And this is really important for understanding Romans four seventeen. Um, so after telling us that salvation comes by faith, one of the things that Paul's going to do in chapter four is he wants to establish that this has always been the teaching of the Bible. This isn't a new thing that we just learned with Jesus. This is something we knew back in Genesis. Mm-hmm. So Paul's like, he's trying to preach to people, say, look, this isn't even new. This salvation by faith thing, apart from works, it comes from Genesis, like the first book of the Bible. So he uses Abraham as his example, which is just brilliant. Mm-hmm. And he shows in Genesis where it says that Abraham believed God and God accounted it to Abraham for righteousness. Mm-hmm. That's righteousness by faith. He believed he was counted righteous. So Paul's building this biblical case that salvation through faith has always been the teaching of scripture. So it's just a brilliant thing. It shows God's working through thousands of years, uh, you know, to communicate the gospel to us in all sorts of different ways. Um, so w- when we get to Romans four seventeen, and we have this phrase, uh, he calls things that are not as though they were, what does this refer to? Does it refer to us speaking things into existence? Well, it's first thing I'll say is no, it's referring to God, not me. Right. I'm not doing anything here. Whatever it's talking about, it's only God that's doing it. So I'm not, I'm not thinking that uh, I do whatever God does. I mean, God creates the world. Does that mean I created the world? Like, of course not. So it's about God, not us. It's not telling us what we'll do. It's telling us what he has done, what he does. Um, in fact, it's something that God alone can do when he calls things that are not as though they were, it's something that only God can do. That's a, that's a God claim. Yeah. So, so let me read uh, Isaiah 44 verses six through eight. And, and know this, that when he calls things that are not as though they were, he's actually not even speaking about creation at all. Um, he's speaking about Abraham. He says, Abraham, you're going to have descendants and I'm going to bless the, you know, the world through you and all this. And Abraham believes him. Now at the moment, Abraham had no kids, but God's talking about it. Like it's just a reality. And so God is predicting the future. And he's going to accomplish what he predicts. So it's about prophecy and fulfillment of prophecy is what it's about. Mm -hmm. Um, So Isaiah 44 talks about this too. Isaiah 44, six through eight, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Another verse for the little God's people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is no God 
who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Which is kind of like almost like a, a mocking joke that God's yeah. putting out towards those who think they're like God. Go ahead and try it. So he's going to challenge them. You think you're like God? Do this. He says, let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let him, let them declare what is to come. Let them speak the future, right? Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. This is, this is God's like throwing the gauntlet down. God's saying, hey, if you want to say you're like me, predict the future like I do. Go for it. Yeah. And so, and he declares that no one can. In verse eight, he says, fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Isaiah 44 is an amazing chapter. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. God's like, yeah, there's me and there's no one like me. And, yeah. and I'm going to prove it through telling you the future. Prophecy. Prophecy. I'll, yeah. So he calls things that are not as though they were. He prophesies and then he can make it happen. God alone can do this. And mm-hmm. the application of uh, the Romans passage, 417, is not that I can declare the future, but that God can, and I should trust him because he can. Mm-hmm. The application is faith. Remember, Romans 1 through 4, even into 5, is all about establishing that I simply trust in God for salvation. The one who can tell the future alone, who alone can do that, I just believe him and I can be saved. So there's the full context. It's beautiful stuff. It has it nothing is. to do with me pretending I can do what God alone can do. It goes back to what you said in the beginning. It's um, if you were to take the Bible alone, you would never come up with that. I mean, yeah. if you were to read Romans, Romans in general, oh, yeah. taking one scripture, you know, like that's how you have to have really your ice, you're using your ice, it's ice of Jesus. Like you're coming in and you're coming in with your own interpretation and you're using that scripture. You're yeah. taking a round peg fitting it into a square hole, making it work the way you want it to work. You broke that down really well. Thank you. Cool. Good. Next one. So new agers have this view on fear. There's a hierarchy of emotion and a hierarchy of feelings and vibration. And each one is attached, if you will, to a feeling. So you have the middle ground, which is like contentment. And then you have love all the way up here at the bottom or at the top. And in between you have like joy, gratitude, all the good feelings. And then Below, you have things like jealousy, bitterness, anger, and at the very bottom is fear. Fear, if you're in a, in a place of fear to them, you are on the lowest frequency. Um, if you believe that God sends people to hell, God is jealous, things like that, they believe that's a very fear-based, they call it fear-based, I hear that a lot, um, belief. The scripture that they'll use is for parts of 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. So this is another one of those scriptures that kind of makes you divine. There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. If you fear, you're not in love. Break that down. What is what is John saying here? What does that mean? Um, okay, so the first thing we'll recognize about this uh, passage in first John is that it's actually talking not just about fear in general, but mm-hmm. a very specific fear. It's talking about the fear of judgment. Um, the fear that when you die, you will be judged and sentenced to hell effectively. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the focus of the fear in first John four, which is probably the worst fear you can have, I think. Yes. Um, but let me, so let me read it with that in mind. Let, let's read it. First John four, 17 through 19. And then we'll talk about how this relates to new age thinking. Mm-hmm. So it says, um, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. So 
So that the, the idea is that love is perfected in, in my heart, the work of love, so that I have no fear about the future judgment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I read on, it says, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear in, has to do with punishment. That's the fear. It's the fear of punishment, the specific kind of fear, not any kind of fear in general. Um, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So the context is not just any fear at all of any kind. Like I'm afraid if I eat these razor blades, it will, it will kill me. You know, like I'm not, that's not a, a wrong fear. That's a good, healthy fear. You know? There is healthy fear. It's a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So the fear that's that I, you know, I don't want to fear whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's talking about believers, Christians only who have Christ, but they're still fearful of judgment. They just don't get how much God loves them. They don't get what God's done for them, how much Christ has cleansed them and forgiven them. And so there's a sanctification that needs to be done and understanding God's love and understanding God's kindness, understanding God's grace in Christ that they need so that they can be, have those fears removed. So there's no fear of judgment for them, for them, I say. Um, but it's only for them because it doesn't mean, this doesn't mean that everybody's saved uh, for a couple of reasons. One, there's different kinds of love in scripture. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, Demas, he left Paul the apostle in the New Testament and he just abandoned him. And Paul says the reason why is because he loved the world. He loved the world. He loved this present age. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So Demas, love was his downfall because he loved the wrong things. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there can be bad love. Um, there's other things where, you know, the scripture tells us, First John, do not love the world or the things in the world. So our love is supposed to be for God. This love is directed towards God. It's not just love in general, mm-hmm. like be a loving person. It's no, no, love towards God. There's, love is relational. So love without context of what you're loving doesn't make sense. Like you can't just say love and fill in the blank, mm-hmm. right? I can't love violence. Like I can't just fill in the blank with anything I want. I need to put God in that blank. I need to say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Mm-hmm. There's a priority of love. Um, so yeah, be grounded in love, be grounded in the love of God uh, in Christ. But there's another side of this, which is the healthy fear and the fear even of judgment for those who don't know Jesus, those who are re- living in rebellion against God. Jesus highlighted this because he said, I will tell you who to fear. That's, this is words that probably new agers don't realize Jesus said. This is what Doreen, this is why Doreen had her, her light bulb moment is she read through the Bible and read Jesus's words and realized, oh, this is not the Jesus I thought. I love her story. I think it's so, so beautiful. So wonderful. Um, Yeah. Jesus says, I will tell you who to fear, fear him, right? Who after your body's dead can cast your soul into hell. Well, what, what, what? Wait, First John says, I should have no fear. Yeah, but that's for those who are in Christ. Jesus is saying that this fear of judgment, you should have it. And it should drive you to Jesus, who totally wipes away your sin, who totally cures the problem of your rebellion, so that then you have no fear of judgment because of what Jesus has done for you. That's the full, that's the full story about, about fear and about love, I think. Um, in Christ, I have no fear of judgment. I'm perfectly right to have no fear out of Christ, I have a healthy, proper fear. And it's the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So not just a sense of terror, like a general sense of uh, agitation, but a real awareness of genuine danger. If I continue in a rebellious life against God and I reject his offering of Jesus uh, to save me. That's good. I like that. I like a few light bulb moments myself during that. Cause I love first John. It's one of my favorite. John's my favorite disciple of 
of all time. Every time I read the gospel, um, revelation, I'm still figuring out, but I love, (laughs) yes, I I like saying agnostic about my eschatology because I'm like, I don't know. All right. Next one. Oh, this one's fun. This is Galatians six verses seven through eight. Um, it's really simple. A man reaps what he sows. Now, again, we know what this means to most new agers, people in word of faith. Um, sow a financial seed and the whole getting and giving back thing. That one's easy to define scripturally. What was Paul saying? Um, so yeah, reaping what he sow, what we sow, um, is often confused with things like karma or what goes around comes around. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it, I think what it ultimately comes down to is that it's, if you extend the time when you reap what you sow, if you extend it out to judgment day, then it, then it becomes a biblical concept. But if I try to put it all happening right now in this life, that's when it becomes more like this sort of difficult to apply. You know, some people don't seem like they're reaping what they're sowing. Other people seem <laughs> like they are, you know, and it just seems like, huh, what, why does that mean everything that happens to you, you deserve it? Is that what that means? Um, and then when someone's rich, they're reaping what they've sown. So all yeah. the wealthy must be all the righteous people. So let me read the, the text and um, show you why I think it's about eternal things, which are, by the way, better than the temporary things of this life. So it's talking about reaping and sowing the things that matter, not the things that will burn. So in uh, Galatians 6, 7 through 9, I'll read the verses. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he will also reap. It says God is not mocked because sometimes we think we can get away with sin. That's the idea. Mm-hmm. When, I, when I think I can sin and get away with it, I'm mocking God. But I will, I will reap what I sow. It's a farming thing. You know, you plant stuff, you're going to get the crops you plant. Then in verse 8, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So it's talking about that judgment day. That, that, that final judgment where my whole life is laid out and I see the fruit of my real life live before God, not just the uh, experiences I had during life. Mm-hmm. And then verse nine says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So it's about an eternal reaping, not a, not a right now reaping. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it talks about the spirit in the flesh, it's, it, this seems to be different than the new age idea. Like, cause I, I love that they're focused on love but I think that their understanding of love is missing something. Yes. And so I think this helps us. Galatians, it didn't talk about the one who sows to love will of love reap corruption or of, of love reap uh, eternal life. And the one who sows to hate will reap corruption. It didn't say love and hate. It said the spirit and the flesh. And Galatians tells us what the spirit and the flesh are. Mm-hmm. And this, this, the flesh, for instance, the works of the flesh, it says in Galatians 5, are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. Idolatry is a little God's thing, right? I was just going to say idolatry. Sorcery, which would include all sorts of, you know, tarot cards, um, uh, mediums, channeling things like this, like all that kind of stuff. Enmity. That's when you, you have bitter despising of other people, right? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Mm -hmm. In other words, sin. Yeah. So only the flesh is sin. It's not just not love. It's, it's sin. Um, now, on contrast to that, the spirit, it says the fruit of the spirit, and it gives a list, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, 
patience, love. Yes, love is in there, but it's that biblical view of love. Mm-hmm. Now, I, now here's where I want to add that, right? The biblical view of love is relational and it focuses on loving God first. God's my first love, mm-hmm. right? And then I love others as myself. That's the biblical view of, of love. And if you have that where God's the top priority, it keeps you from having other loves become idols, like with Demas who loved the world, right? He loved the world, but that means he didn't love the Lord properly. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if, if we lift up love, absent of the priority of loving God first, then we can actually be falling into idolatry. We can be falling into selfishness. We can, uh, we can actually be in the flesh thinking that we're walking in love. Yeah. That makes sense. The next one is, I think, simple to understand. Uh, it's Proverbs, again, another Proverbs one, 1821, the tongue can bring life or death. And once again, we understand this to be used as a speaking uh, profession to declare things into existence. Biblically, the tongue can bring life or death means something else to a believer. What does it mean, Mike? Um, okay, the tongue can bring life or death. Um, this, I've, I've heard Christians go too far with this passage too. Me too. Before I ever heard a new age person do it. Um, this is so part I, of the problem is that it, it's, a, it's in the churches. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and in a sense, it's understandable confusion, but it's still confusion. So I want to try to, hopefully I can explain. Uh, there's two verses in Proverbs here that go together. They go together. And it's Proverbs 18, verse 20 and 21. So I want to read them in, in context because you can see clearly these, these verses go together. Mm-hmm. And then it changes your understanding of the passage a little bit. Uh, so it says, from the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied, and he is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Ah, so he's talking about eating the fruit of the things you say, and the, the verse before it mentions the fruit of the things you say. The fruit of a man's mouth, his, by the fruit of his mouth, his stomach is satisfied. So what's clear is this, that the fruit of a man's mouth is the things that we say out loud, and then it comes back into our lives and does impact us. Well, that sounds consistent with the new age view, right? Uh, but there's more to it than that. Yeah, there's a lot um, more to it. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it means something like this. We're going to eat our words for better or worse in our lives. And it can even lead to life or death for us. That's that verse about death and life. It could even lead to very, very much to life or death. What we say has a major impact on our lives. Major impact on our lives. And this is consistent in Proverbs. Yes, we, the power of words we agree on here. Mm-hmm but they're not creating reality. We're just, we're just going to have to deal with what we say and what we say is going to impact our lives. So there's an interesting statistic about jobs um, uh, and why people get fired from jobs. I found this out a while ago. I thought it was really interesting. The number one reason why people get fired from jobs is not poor job performance. It's bad attitudes. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. And, I, and then I thought, yeah, I, I looked at my own life and I thought, yeah, man, people I know who, can't hold a job. It's an attitude issue. Usually it's not like they came late to work. It's they mouth off and they're mean to customers and yeah. it's the mouth. Right. Yeah. And so their bad language or bad words or unfruitful talk ends up coming back into their life, but in a very practical way. Right. Yes. The same thing can be said of marriages, marriages that break down because the spouse will, or both of them will not control their tongue. And they just say such horrible things that eventually it kills the marriage or friendships where you've lost the friendship because that person will not guard their speech. Wars, literally wars have gone down because of the stuff that leaders said to each other. 
And so, yes, death and life are in the power of the tongue, but it's a much more practical thing. It's not mystical. I think it's just very practical. I had a friend actually years ago, this is a truly sad story, um, who uh, he just got in the flesh. He mouthed off to his boss, decided he was going to quit. So he goes, I quit. He'd had the job for years and years and years. It was a good job, a lot of job security, pension, and all that kind of stuff. But he quit. He walked away because he just wanted to vent. Like Proverbs says, a fool vents all his feelings. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man quietly holds it back, the scripture says. So he should have just held it back. Well, after a week or two, he went back to his job and he thought he could get it back. But his boss was like, no, I'm done with you. You do great work, but I can't stand you. Wow. (laughs) You know, and you fired. So I have no obligation. You're the union. You can't appeal to the union or anything. So he lost his job. Consequently, he couldn't get it. He couldn't find another good job. Maybe because of his attitude. I don't know. Um, he ended up uh, using drugs. I'm not kidding. Wow. And a, a couple years later, he died uh, as a result of his lifestyle. That's so sad. And it all started because he wouldn't control his tongue at work. And I'm like, yeah, death and life are in the power of your tongue. But it's not you creating reality. It's you having horrible and negative impact on the people around you and yourself because of your uncontrolled tongue. That's, that's what I see in this passage. It's a natural consequence. Yeah. Um, but if we add the mystical idea that our words are creating reality or that we're creators with God, that's completely unbiblical. That's completely forced on the text. We, yeah. we just don't, we don't see that at all. So, and, and it's not even that negativity is forbidden. It's just foolish talk that's forbidden. That's the idea. Don't speak foolish things. That's what Proverbs focuses on. Don't be a yeah. fool. It doesn't say don't be negative because sometimes, sometimes negative words are the right words. <laughs> that's uh, a good way to, yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Sometimes they do, right? Um, Jesus talked, spoke very negative words about people and two people. And other times he spoke very positive words. Yeah. He always spoke true words and the right words at the right time. Yeah. We, yeah. we shouldn't lie. We shouldn't have complaints with ingratitude. We shouldn't slander and gossip. But there can be lies that are positive as well. Everything's fine. <laughs> you look great today. Don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. That won't kill you. Don't worry. You know, I they, feel fine. I mean, yeah. I, for any of us who've been upset because advertisers lied to us about their products, positively promising things and making us feel good. And then we bought the thing and we're like, nope, that wasn't it. Yeah. Um, you know that positive stuff can be just as foolish as negative stuff and worse sometimes because it's just a way of manipulating others. Yeah. It's a good way of putting that. Thank you. Thank you for breaking that down. I'm sorry to hear about your friend. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. unfortunate. Next one. All right. Now this one's uh This one has been quoted to me personally a lot, especially this month because of my recent video, Uh, because I don't think people quite understand. Uh, This is a proof text for a lot of, in a a lot of hyper charismatic groups for the experiences of the supernatural encounters, uh, being able to declare things and word of faith. And of course, uh, new, new thought, new age use this, but I've seen this so much more in hyper charismatic groups and it's John 14 chapter 14 verses 12 through 14. Jesus says that he who believes in him will do even greater things than these, which is the stuff that he was doing all the miracles and whatever you ask for in my name, I will do, which we went over. Uh, You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. The key thing to focus on in this is that We will do greater things than Jesus did, which is why we can 
kind of like go into the new age to have these super hyper experiences. We can go to the realm of heaven and see Jesus himself. And uh, we can leave our bodies and have our spirits go to heaven. And we can visit with angels all the time. And just these really um, intense supernatural claims Mm -hmm. based on this one scripture. So we're supposed to do greater things than Jesus did. Before I answer the greater things part, because I will forget this, I just want to mention um, that there's nothing about these, this, this kind of expecting people to have these out-of-body experiences. It was such a rare thing. It happened to Paul, but it was so rare that he considered it like boasting to even talk about it because it's mm. like, this doesn't happen, guys. Like, this is not a normal thing. That's not a normal Christian experience. The Christian experience is Jesus is actually with me right now, not... I'm leaving to go to be with him. Like, why would I need to leave to be with him? He's with me right now. And it also tells us in scripture that Satan disguises his angels as ministers of light. Meaning that if I have these experiences, I may well be encountering demons to lead me astray, uh, impersonating angelic beings. Can I, can I throw a, um, a reverse at you? Something that they would say is because you haven't watched my physics of heaven video, but in chapter, I believe it's chapter four or five. There's a chapter called authentic versus counterfeit. And in this chapter, they're saying that because there's a counterfeit in the new age, there has to be an authentic. So the difference is, is that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God, and they use the scripture that um, he will not hand you a serpent. If you ask for a fish, Mm-hmm. So if you're asking God for a supernatural encounter, he's not going to hand you a serpent. He's not going to give you a demonic encounter. They believe that if you are saved, you are sealed, that God would not allow a demonic encounter to come to you and much less an angel uh, that's really a demon or, mm-hmm. you know, a counterfeit spirit. They will use that scripture and say, because I'm a child of God, because I'm sealed and saved by the Holy Spirit, I am protected from that ever happening. Okay. Um, I think I think the b- more biblical understanding would be God won't give you the demonic encounter. <laughs> He's not going to give you the serpent. He doesn't say there are no serpents. <laughs> He's just like, I'm not going to give you the serpent when you're asking for a fish. Um, but yet, are there actually, you know, demonic encounters? Are we not yet warned? Like, why are we even warned that Satan disguises his angels as ministers of light? Why are we told in 1 John that we need to test all things because mm-hmm. many false prophets have gone into the world. And it's telling that both of those scriptures in Corinthians and first John were written to believers Mm -hmm. in Colossians. It warns us about, you know, messing around with angels, right. Intruding into the worship of angels and all this kind of stuff. And it says, stay away from all that stuff. Like this is just not the direction you want to go. The idea that, um, as long as I'm asking God for a good experience, I'll always get that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, imagine if that's not true. How are you setting and you're, and then you're, but you're setting people up. Like as long as you're asking for a good experience, but if it's not true, what are you setting them up for? Deception. Deception, right? Because God tells us, I don't want you to do this mediumship thing. I don't want you to be in doing these things are all forbidden in scripture, right? Yeah. They're all forbidden. When it comes to our, our spiritual life, it's pray. That's it. I'm not seeking for all those kind of encounters. And so by, by going in thinking that I'm guaranteed good encounters with good spirits and all that when yet even scripture tells me test the spirits um that seems really scary seems like they're being set up to be deceived Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, and the, oh, the other idea that there's for the counterfeit, there's always the real thing. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm telling you, if you read this book, Mike, you will, yeah, your head yeah. will explode. It's, it's on my reading list. Yeah. Physics of heaven. But, um, but I, I don't see how that's true. There's always a real thing for the counterfeit. Like how, how is that true? Like, where is this? Yeah, they'll say that, um, you can, Satan can't create. Okay. So they'll say that Satan, everything that Satan uses to, um, trick you is taken from God. So like Satan talking to, and by the way, this is why it's good to know their mindset. People who are watching, like, this is good. You need to know what people are believing to correctly interpret it. Oh yeah. But, um, they'll say like, for example, Satan and Jesus, you know, whenever he was tempted, Satan used scripture. He already used what he used, what was already there. He didn't create that. So what they'll say is, okay, if there's, there's a, if you can channel spirits, there has to be an authentic version of that. No, I'm not kidding. This is what they'll say. Auras, spirit guides, uh, channeling, uh, crystals, everything, anything that's negative in the new age, um, they're saying, but it was God's first. So because Satan can't create, this is what they say. This is not what I believe, <laughs> yeah. but because he cannot create, um, it all had to be from God first. So it's kind of like somebody gave me the example of um, like plastic. Uh, you, 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 we took what was already there and created something from it. Mm-hmm. So if we were to go back to the original, we would have something authentic. And yeah. that's what they claim they're doing. Okay. So, I mean, my gut just wants to say that's nonsense. But, <laughs> but let, me, let me try to give a biblical example to build a bridge with someone yes. who thinks that. Yeah. Um, so... In the Old Testament, uh, to these false gods like Baal and stuff, they would sacrifice their children by burning them alive on the on the molten heated hands of the idol. The metal hands heated up really hot to the red hot, put their children on there and burn them to death. God's now by this principle, there's gotta be some Christian version of that. Right? Hmm. You make a good point. Like, whoa, oh, what's the Christian version of sacrificing my children? there isn't one guys. There's no, there isn't one. This is, this is why God actually says about this, about these burning these children. He says, it never entered my mind. My mind. Yeah. He says, I never, I never even never had any desire for that sort of horrible, evil thing. Do not do those things. Now in the same, you know, context, he says the same kind of stuff about sorcery and witchcraft and mediums and channeling and all those kinds of things. And so this is, um, I, I will be so bold as to say this is doctrines of demons to teach me that I am to go into these things that God rebuked and refuted throughout the scriptures. And I'm to learn their ways and call it Christian. When mm. God consistently rebukes Israel for doing exactly that. Yeah. When they, when they made the golden calf, when uh, Moses went up to the Mount Sinai and he's getting the 10 commandments and they made the golden calf. Do you know what they called the golden calf? They called him Yahweh. Yes. Yeah. The name of God. And God wasn't like, well, for every ungodly idol out there, there's the true thing. You found the true one. There's the Yahweh idol. Instead, he, he throws the commandments down and there's this radical judgment that happens as a result of these things. So it's, um, it is the worst, most dangerous kind of nonsense to say that sort of thing. So leading off of that, because yeah. we unpacked that, because that's going to be a foundation to dissect the scripture mm-hmm. because this is the scripture that's used to back up 
all those beliefs that I just kind of set out there. Um, because again, I see this in hyper charismatic groups to back up, uh, some really interesting, uh, unsettling things that we can see, um, because we're supposed to do greater things than him. But biblically speaking, what does that mean? Like when he says, Jesus says he who believes in him will do even greater things than these. What is he saying to the disciples in context? Okay. So let's break it down. Um, There's two possible meanings. And sometimes when you come to a passage, you don't know what to do with it. You can ask, what are my options? Like, what could it mean? That's fair to the text. Mm -hmm. And um, well, it's that word greater is what it kind of hinges on. Greater could refer to quality or it could refer to quantity. Greater in quality or greater in quantity. Um, Like I have a, a greater number of chickens or greater quality of chickens. You know, like what kind of greater are we talking about? And so um, let's say if we're going to take it as quality, we're going to do greater miracles, qualitatively greater than Jesus did. Let me just look at what Jesus did because it has nothing to do with astral projection or any, whatever that stuff is. It has nothing to do with channeling or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Jesus healed people, a guy born blind, right? He healed a guy born blind. Mm -hmm. He cast out demons. In fact, he cast over a thousand demons out of one guy, right? We are legion, but it was supposed to be a thousand uh, if, if I remember correctly. So you'd have to cast out even more demons. Like, I will have to cast out 2,000 to be able to get greater in, in quality. He walked on water. I have to walk on air. Uh, he raised the dead. I have to bring people to life that didn't All even exist. Time. I don't know. Like, how do you do greater <laughs> than raising the dead? Um, yeah. He died for us and rose again. What am I? Am I wait, I'm going to do greater than dying for the world and saving them and rising from the dead. No, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Mm-hmm. Um, if what we do is greater in kind, then I just want to see it because astral projection and weird, what ends up being, you know, pagan practices, this has nothing to do with Jesus. He wears these things, where's these greater things and the apostles, why didn't they do greater things than Jesus? Right. Where we read about like Paul, he had a handkerchief. Yeah. People touched it and were healed. Well, Jesus was greater because he just said the word and long distance healed people. They didn't have to touch anything. So Jesus was greater than, than Paul. Um, why did Paul have to leave Epaphroditus sick in Miletus, this follower of his? He had to leave him sick, and he says he almost died. And Paul left him there so he could heal naturally because the prayer thing wasn't working. I don't remember Jesus ever having that issue. And oh, if wow. our like, heroes in the scripture don't do greater qualitative works than Jesus, then why would I think that we're supposed to do that today? Um, the other option is that it's quantity. Quantity greater oh. numbers of miracles, numbers of works than Jesus did, not in quality. And I, like, as if we could, he saves us for eternity. No one can beat that. No. <laughs> um, and that's his, that's his great miracle, right? Um, no, but Jesus departs, he leaves the earth and he says, you'll do greater works than these. I think it's about numbers because we're continuing for 2000 years to do things in the name of Jesus. And so number wise, yes, the works continue, but now they continue. It's not just Jesus going around doing things. It's Christians going around doing things in his name. I never thought about it that way. That's, uh, that's pretty compelling. And this is, and this is a big transfer because in the Jewish mindset, you don't do things in the name of anybody, but God, but Jesus is telling them you're going to do stuff in my name. So let me, with that in mind, let's read the passage again, right? Mm He says in verse 12 of John 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the father. 
works as a continuation because Jesus is leaving. Why? Why are our works going to be greater? He's leaving. That's the reason why. He's not around to continue. Yeah. We're going to be doing the work. And it's better than that, though, because he does the work through us. That's the next two verses. Verse 13 and 14, he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So you ask God and God does it? No, Jesus does it, right? Because Jesus is God. This is, this is an elevation of who Christ is. Jesus says, I'm going to leave the earth and I'm going to continue working through my people. Okay, so I don't think it's though that each individual believer does miracles more miraculous than Jesus. I think it's Christ continuing his miracles and answering the prayers of believers throughout time. And we've had 2,000 years of answered prayer, which is definitely greater, at least in quantity, than the things that Jesus did. Um, but then there's a the last issue that people are probably still hung up on, which is anything. We ask him anything. We can, he can do anything. Um, and this is where we get the name it and claim it stuff. Or I'm going to believe for, and you fill in the blank. I'm just going to believe for this because it's anything. Yeah. Um, but here I'll just add again. It's not the only thing. We take everything God says about prayer, everything Jesus tells us about prayer, not just one sentence. Because mm-hmm. the same one who said anything, right? He also said uh, that we should pray, your will be done, not mine. Mm-hmm. You, can't, you can't just turn right all the time. Yes. <laughs> um, and we get this example to like Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle writes to Rome, Romans 1, mm-hmm. and he's writing to them and he's like, man, I want to come see you guys. And he's praying constantly that God will allow him to come see them in Rome. But look at, he doesn't say, I get anything I ask for in prayer, even though it's a good thing. I just want to visit the believers in Rome. He still thinks God's will might overrule his prayers. So Romans one verses nine through 10, he says, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. By God's will. By God's will. So even his travel plans for ministry purposes are not things that he assumes are going to happen. Yeah. Well, Paul, you have to believe it. You have to believe it. Well, maybe the believing it is something God gives you in the moment and you don't have to stir it up in yourself. And if you go, well, if I'm not believing it, maybe the Lord doesn't have it for me. I don't know. I, I don't know how to make that happen. I, I shouldn't kid myself on these things. Um, that was good. Yeah. yeah. And then of course the messenger of Satan that we read about earlier where Paul pleads, we ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Well, obviously he doesn't mean anything with no qualifications about God's will or God's plan or God's better purposes when he's praying about the uh, thorn in his flesh, God tells him, no, my grace is enough for you. That's a paradigm shift for me. Cause I never actually understood. I never understood that scripture. So, um, never ever would have thought it was more of a quantity thing that, that makes a lot of sense to me personally. Yeah. At least that's my best understanding of it. Yeah. I would have to adopt that understanding at this point. Um, the next two we can kind of put together because they are great, uh, pop culture scriptures. We have Philippians 4, which is, everybody probably has this on their, there's probably bumper stickers and, you know, wall mounts. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And the next one is a very, another very popular one, Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in a future. Everybody loves to kind of take these scriptures. Um they get tattoos of them. They, you know, post them online. Uh, but contextually speaking, uh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength written by Paul, who's in prison, Jeremiah 29, 11. Anybody's read Jeremiah knows that that's a, what do they call him? The weeping prophet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a depressing book. Um, Mm -hmm. these, yeah, they're both similar. 
because people like to use these scriptures. This is more for our culture, but also for people who um, think that we can live a prosperous life. I know a very popular uh, TV preacher who uses these uh, to kind of back up that we are supposed to have prosperous lives. But in the context of scripture, what do they mean? Okay. Um, let me just say this is, uh, sometimes people rip these verses out of people's hands by telling them it doesn't mean what you think, but then they leave them empty handed and they don't yes. give them some hope or something like, but what, but where, where's the hope I do get from this verse? So <laughs> I don't want to just tell them, tell us what it doesn't mean. I want us to understand yeah. what it does mean and how it does apply to our lives. Cause they are beautiful, wonderful, hopeful scriptures. Yeah. Um, they just don't mean what some people think they mean. Um, so some people quote Philippians 4.13, we'll start with that one, as uh, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, we're, my team's going to win the Super Bowl because I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to have success in business. I'm going to achieve my goals. Yeah. Right? I'm going to make it through college because I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to win this marathon because I can do anything <clears throat> through Christ who strengthens me. But that that is definitely out of context. Um, and I'm kind of I'm kind of glad it does. It It should even feel wrong that we think we can quote that verse to just get whatever we want. Mm-hmm. It should just feel wrong to our spirit. Like it just feels wrong. Like I feel like it's not right for me to just do whatever I want. I want what the Lord wants and I don't always know what he wants, you know? Um, so what is it really about Philippians four verse 11? It's about, I'm starting in verse 11, two verses back. And we're going to find out it's about Paul going through suffering. It's not even about avoiding suffering. It's about going through suffering. So let me read. It says, not that I'm speaking of being in need for I have learned. And here's the lesson he's learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Mm-hmm. This is something I never hear preached from prosperity preachers. Contentment, contentment. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So there's a secret he's learned. He knows how to go through pain and difficult times, lowness in his life, in hunger, in need, in, uh, in, in all those sorts of things. And the secret is verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or you could put it this way, I can get through any circumstance because I have Jesus with me. And that is a beautiful truth. Mm-hmm. And it has nothing to do with winning the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> it's taking it in context and what Paul meant it to be, that... Yes. I mean, he's in prison, he's about to die mm-hmm. and he's learned the secret of not happiness, but it's, it's about being content in, in, in any situation you're in, it's through Christ. So it's like, whenever you think about it through those lens, yeah, it can apply to us, but not, yeah. not in some superficial ways oh, yeah. that I think some people can do. Yeah. It's not that the spiritual person gets what they want. Mm-hmm. It's that the spiritual person realizes they already have what they need and it's Christ. Yeah, that's good. We should make a meme out of that. (laughs) (laughs) The next one is uh, similar because this again is written by Jeremiah, weeping prophet, lamenting because Jerusalem, uh, he's warning them. He's like, repent, please, you know, uh, sackcloth and ashes. But uh, all all people ever really quote from Jeremiah is this scripture. Uh, What does it mean? in context. Um, okay. Well, f- first let me just start by this. Like since there's so many passages taken out of context that we've been going over here, just mm-hmm. imagine if I did this to you, Melissa, if I took <laughs> something you said out of context and then pretended that you made a promise you never made and then tried to hold you to it. Give me an example. Oh, well I, uh, I, when I was in junior high, this is a sad example and I'm not proud of it. 
Um, I'm not proud of a lot of things in junior high. <laughs> <laughs> None of us are, Mike. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> when I was in junior high, I was doing really poorly in my uh, typing class. We had typing class back then. Yeah, we did too. Uh, I this typing class and I'm sitting there and the teacher saw that I was just being a goofball and I was not being responsible and my grades were really bad, um, really, really bad. And she tells me, you know, if you're not going to try, why do you even come? Or no, I think she said, if you're not going to try, you shouldn't even come. And I intentionally thought to myself, <laughs> you don't have to go to class. I, I don't have to go to school. I yeah. don't have to go to her class. So I'm not even kidding. After, after it was my last period of the day. So after I got to that period for like a week or two, I just left school. I ditched her class. And I thought to myself, if I get in trouble, I'm going to tell the principal or whoever that she told me that I, that I shouldn't come. <laughs> Why? Because because part of what she said was something I liked and wanted to use for my benefit, but it was wrong. And uh, long story short, I, I ended up uh, getting in the principal's office and I used my little trick and I don't know how this worked. It worked. <laughs> she, she got reprimanded by the principal for telling a student uh, not to come to school. No way. And, uh, and I, and I sat there and was like, I can't believe that worked. Like, <laughs> well, the problem is that you're not going to pull one over on God. It's not going to work on him. <laughs> Oh, you know, wow. and, and yeah. this is what we're doing is we're taking this stuff. I mean, it worked on her. Actually, I flunked junior high, so it didn't really work for me. <laughs> That's actually a really good analogy though, because you're taking yeah. something, you're kind of, again, making yeah. it fit into your life. Yeah. Here's what, it, you mean, here's what you mean, but here's how I can use it. And, yeah. and that's what happens, unfortunately. So um, the context of uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 is it's about Israel. It's not about you. Um, it's not about us. Yes. And it's, it's about Israel. It's about Israel um, long ago, right before they were utterly destroyed by the Babylonians. Mm -hmm. And the temple was ruined and, and burnt down and destroyed by the Babylonians. And they were carried off into Babylon into captivity. And right before this happens, God's like, my plans are for your prosperity. And then they're destroyed. Well, what's up with that? Right? What's, <laughs> what's, what's the real context? What's going on? Mm -hmm. The real context is that they're in rebellion and God's going to judge them. But he tells them, I don't want this path for you. I want to bless you, but your rebellion is going to bring judgment instead of blessings. And then he gives him a promise. He's like, yeah, but when you return to me, I will bring you back into the blessings I have for you. That's the short explanation of it. That's just a short version. Um, Does Candace the, apply to the individual in the 21st century? Yes. Um, I think that how it applies to us is we realize I don't have a promised land on earth like Israel did. They have the, phys they have the physical promised land of Israel. Mm-hmm. And this sort of, you know, uh, country promises to them as a country about God's blessings if they will turn their hearts to him. Mm -hmm. That's something God's done with Israel and nobody else. I don't pretend that's about me. But what I do have is I do have some promises from God. Mm -hmm. I have promises of Christ being with me. I have promises of God using all the circumstances of my life for his glory and for my good. And I have the promises of eternal joy and eternal life and all those wonderful things. And I hold on to those things and I say, my job is just to obey you, God, and let you bring these things out in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but the danger is when I take promises of physical prosperity to Israel and I apply them as though they're promises of immediate physical prosperity to all people who are in Christ. And that, um, that ends up being a problem. And in fact, even in Jeremiah's day, he tells them that it's going to be 70 years before God brings them back into the land. Mm -hmm. For most of the Israelites, that means they will die before yeah. these promises are fulfilled. And that kind of is our situation. I, I will, it's upon the death of my life that the fullness of God's promises are going to be experienced by me. And so there's like a, 
yeah, there's a future and a hope, but I need to project it forward to heaven if I want to apply it to my life. Do you think no harm can ever come to a Christian? Um, absolutely not. I mean, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, I think that if I would flip it, not only say it, no, of course not. I mean, look at Jesus, look at the apostles, look at any Christian you've ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, look at any human you've ever met that no harm could come to people is silly. But I would say this is that if you're, if your experience of what it means to know God and relate with God, if it, if it depends on you having prosperity right now, it's the cheap imitation. Yes. It's the cheap imitation. Um, you know, this is what Jesus encountered over and over. He feeds the multitude. He multiplies the bread, gives 5,000 people food. And then they're like, show us a sign that you're really, you're really the one. And so he's like, well, what, basically I'll paraphrase like, what do you want? And they go make more bread. <laughs> and he's like, you don't get it. Mm-hmm. He tells them, I am the bread of life. He tells them, don't labor for the food which perishes, but for that which lasts for eternal life. And he's trying to turn their eyes off this temporary world up to eternity. And this is the same struggle with people who want to quote these verses about right now prosperity. And they mm-hmm. don't realize how cheap that is compared to the eternal, wonderful, heavenly things that uh, God has for us. Awesome. That's good. Last one. Last one. Wow. To our last one. Um, thank you, by the way. You're breaking this down really well. I'm really enjoying this. Oh, good. This is kind of everything put together with word of faith, prosperity, and uh, hyper charisma and uh, new age. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is basically used to think only positive things. Because if you're... And it's, it sounds so simple and cheap to say, only, think only positive things. Basically, it's saying that kind of like what I was saying before about if you are wanting healing or if you're looking for a breakthrough or anything, um, there's like almost like this lock on the head of thinking anything else. So if you're trying to renew your mind, you're trying to get into the proper mindset for your breakthrough. Scripturally speaking, it's another Romans passage. What, what does that mean in context? Um, okay, so... I know here, we encounter, here we encounter some truths about that yeah, thinking changes my life. Those things are true. But, when it, but it's like two different whole different worldviews that are coming at the text. There's the biblical worldview. Then there's this kind of new age worldview. We talk about vibrations. Um, Frequencies. This stuff is, is, is not like I get what they're saying. It's just not true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's not, a misuse of, of quantum mechanics, quantum science. Yeah. Well, and the edges of science, like quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics is like probably the most abused current scientific thing. You know, yes. everybody wants to grab it and prove whatever they want to prove with it. And mm-hmm. when you actually research these things, you go, oh, it's not that at all. Um, <laughs> uh, so and I get atheists want to use quantum mechanics to, yeah. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. That's uh, but one. it seems as though that's the really bad or poor understandings or uses of the, of the thing. Anyhow. Let's just read it in context, right? Romans 12 verses one and two and try to pick up what it's saying, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So it's about me giving myself to God. That's the primary thing here. Then he goes on to explain what that looks like. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect uh, 
the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. Excuse me. Um, so there's an order of thought here. Uh, in verse one, I present my body as a sacrifice. That means I walk in obedience to God and I say, you know, my life belongs to you, God. Whatever you want, I'm going to do that. I'm going to prioritize your priorities. I'm going to live for you. And then there's the, the, partially the result of that, the result of physical obedience to God, where it's the transformation of my mind. This, this I think means when you find that when you look at your inner person and you have this messed up thought life and you want it to change, mm-hmm. one of the things that you can do is you can say, God, I will live for you with my body. My actions will glorify your name. I will, I will choose to follow Christ, to cast off sin, to not be conformed to the world, and I will obey Christ. And then I find that even my thoughts are changing. So the path to a changed mind is a being a living sacrifice for God, living for God. That's the idea. Uh, Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, The be transformed is I'm not transforming anything externally. Mm -hmm. No, I'm transformed. Yes. I'm not affecting anything outside of me here. This, this body's obeying God. This mind is being changed to be more like Christ. And it's not about impacting vibrations or any of that kind of stuff. It's about the change of character, which to me is the most important kind because the one person I have to live with is me mm-hmm. wherever you I go. Like yourself. Yeah. There, yeah. There I am. <laughs> and so, so that, that becomes so valuable and so wonderful and so beautiful. So it's not about getting what I want. It's about being transformed as I give God what he wants, my life, a living sacrifice. And he changes me from the inside out. And so it's, it's all God focused and not me focused actually. Which is the theme to this, isn't it? Because every single yeah. scripture that we've gone over, and again, there are hundreds mm-hmm. of others. It's all it's not about us. Yeah. It's it's yeah. all focused towards Jesus. It's about yes. him. Okay, and then that this perfect segue to the mm-hmm. to the final point I'll make on this verse, which is uh, Romans twelve, one and two. It starts with the phrase therefore, right? Therefore, by the mercies of God, present your body's living sacrifice. Well, when you see a therefore, it's nice to wonder what it's there for. <laughs> um, therefore implies something they just said leads to this, you know, it leads to a conclusion. Well, the thing that was said in the previous verse, Romans eleven thirty six, was for from him, God, and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So because everything's from God, everything's for God, everything belongs to him, right? It comes mm-hmm. through him. It's all his. He deserves all glory. Therefore, live your life for God. Mm-hmm. And as you're doing that, you, he will change your mind and he will transform you. Sanctification. So, it's a sanctification yeah. verse in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we could probably sit here for another five, six, seven hours and go over all these scriptures, but 15 yeah. will do. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it's, I hope it's beneficial for people. Uh, I really hope people like the lights go on um, or, or others are equipped, you know, to minister to, to those who have these, you know, false understandings of these. Just, seriously, Mike, I think that um, the way that you handle information, uh, the way that uh, scripture is, you know, kind of broken down. I just appreciate your style and your kindness. I think that there are so many times where we can kind of take how people view scripture and just kind of attack them instead of actually um, explaining to them or helping them see uh, that there's another view to this, you know, that I'll tell you, that's my natural man. (laughs) Go at him. See, and I've expressed this to many people. Um, I I, pride, like I, I struggle with pride and people pleasing. Those are like my two things and, and having people kind of along, come alongside and keep that in check is important. But, um, thinking we know, uh, everything about this is telling because I, 
I didn't know anything about scripture before I got out of the new age, but I thought I did. Mm-hmm. And it took me a long time to unlearn this and unhinge myself from these meanings. So yeah. I think that a lot of people are going to be very happy with this video. They're going to be relieved. They're going to be, they're going to have an answer to their question. So I, I want to thank you for, for coming on and doing this and taking this time because it's, yeah. it's it took a long time to do this, but we did it and we it's going to be amazing. Success. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thanks yeah. again. Is there anything you want to add before we close out? All I want to add is, is um, uh, I'm going to put this video on my channel as well. And you guys, this has been Melissa Doherty. I'll put links to her stuff in the comments below or in the description below. I want people to be able to have access to your con- content as well. And to know that you're out there doing this stuff. I think you're doing great stuff. Yes. You have stuff on the law of attraction on uh, a bunch of, a whole bunch of new age stuff that I think new we age. do need to be familiar yeah. with or new and apologetics or, in general. Apologetics yeah. is kind of my passion, you know, and kind of dissecting other religions in general, apologetics and theology. And but, um, Melissa, this has been really helpful for me because I didn't have to go and find out new age teachings on all these passages you were able to bring that. Yeah. And then I was able to try to respond, you know, accordingly. Which is what people want because people don't know what they actually mean. Every yeah. new ager, every word of faith, everybody knows what they actually think they mean. Yeah. But if you're to take that and, and you know, explain it from the biblical context, mm-hmm. it's completely different. So yeah. that's, yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for yeah. taking the time to prepare yeah. for this because oh, this yeah. is really going to bless people. It's worth doing. It. Totally. Thanks. I appreciate what you're doing. I hope you keep doing it. But, yeah, uh, you too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks. Uh-huh. Can't stop now. <laughs> I know we can't stop now. We're kind of in this too deep. Thanks. Thanks again, Mike, for coming on. This is, this was amazing. This was uh, edifying. It was a blessing. I really appreciate this. I'm sure that we're going to get you some good feedback. Yeah. Thank you so much. God bless you. You too.